Hello, welcome to episode 41 of the Eclipse Viewer Podcast. Uh, my name is David Blakesley, the regular host of this program, joined as always by Trevor Barrett. Good morning, Trevor. Morning, David. It's good to be back and yes. talk about such a unique set in a way. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, this is this is unique uh, in a variety of ways, but uh, one of the uh, kind of most uh, attention-grabbing aspects of Carlos Sora's Flamenco Trilogy, Eclipse Series 6, is that it is the only one that's currently out of print. And because of that, it fetches a high dollar value. And we'll talk a little bit about that in just a bit here. Uh, but we just want to kind of welcome listeners again to this uh, podcast that is dedicated to the films of Criterion's Eclipse series of DVDs, that line of overlooked, lost, and forgotten classics that uh, have uh, kind of been a little bit of an afterthought again as of late. Uh, Criterion has not announced a new set since the Julien de Vivier set uh, released uh, right at the end of 2015. And uh, we kind of wonder, as always, <laughs> whether or not we're going to be getting more <laughs> of these. But, you know, Trevor and I just kind of keep chunking away at it month after month. And we are all the way up to episode 41. Uh, of course, some of those episodes have been you know, parts one and two, uh, covering some of the larger sets. So we're not quite all the way through yet, but we sort of do have an end in sight. And maybe by around this time next year, we will have covered all the sets, unless Criterion drops another one or two on us uh, in between. Uh, but yeah, this is this is a unique uh, uh, set also just because of its context. It's one of the relatively uh, modern uh, editions in the Eclipse series. These are films that were made in the 1980s. I believe they're the only Spanish uh, films to be made, and they're primarily primarily uh, dance oriented and musically oriented, uh, which I guess puts them in a certain sense uh, up against the uh, Eclipse or the Lubitsch musicals, uh, which we covered way back when, when uh, Trevor and I were just kind of getting started in the uh, Eclipse Viewer 2.0, you might say. Um, so yeah, we we uh, have put this episode off for a little while i think part of it was you know wouldn't you say the uh, the out of print status uh trevor why don't you tell us a little bit about how you uh, were able to obtain a, a <laughs> copy of this of this uh you know legendary uh, elusive uh, uh treasure well first off I, I i kick myself still every single day because back in 2012 um I had just uh, uh, finished up a job. I'd, I'd quit my job in New York and was getting ready to move back uh, west. And Amazon suddenly got like a box of uh, of the Flamenco trilogy in stock and put it up for I don't know twenty five thirty bucks. I don't think it was very much money. It wasn't. Uh, they didn't put it up for their full price. They were marking it down. And I thought, oh, I should probably get that, but. I didn't because I didn't know what my future was going to be like. <laughs> I didn't know if I could afford it um, after moving back west and starting a new job and just, you know, so I didn't do it. And, you know, every, I think people who placed their orders that day got a set and lucky for them because ever since then I've never seen it for very cheap at all. The cheapest I've seen it was uh, a little while ago for around, I think, $70, $75 on eBay. And, you know, it it... That's that's actually a really good price for this set. I usually see it for you know up above a hundred, maybe even above two hundred dollars. Um, which you know I, I haven't had to do anything like that yet because 
I was looking for it late last year, trying to figure out how I was going to get a hold of it so that we could do this episode. I had even written to Criterion to say, hey, do you you guys just happen to have some of these sitting around that you can't sell anymore? Uh, And no, they don't. (laughs) They did not have any more. You've got some nerve, Trevor. Funny. Well, they were very polite about it, and uh, you know, even maybe even a little apologetic, um, or they were just laughing at me and, and saying the same thing in their heads, and just thought, "Well, let's be diplomatic here." <laughs> they probably have a whole room full of them, and they just—that's what they—they have to say to people. I don't know, um, but anyway, I, I had I had written and said, you know, d- is that a possibility? Is you know, is there anything like that? Because I I would I would have been happy to pay for it. I wasn't. Uh, necessarily trying to just get something but um anyway uh writer i think like the next day or so i was visiting uh, a a neighbor here in in town who was sick and who had been bedridden for a little while and i, I went over and i was just sitting there chatting with him i look up on his shelf and there's carlos soros flamenco trilogy just sitting there i didn't even know this fellow liked to watch movies let alone criterion movies and let alone what happened to have the the it, it was the only clip series he had too it's not like he had collected them and you know so therefore uh, there were pickings all over the place you know he'd he'd purchased this one because he loved the films and um anyway so he he, he let me he let me borrow them um, I haven't given them back yet, <laughs> but I, but I will. Um, yes. I, I will be giving them back to him as soon as we're done with this episode. Thanking him great, uh, graciously because uh, first off, it just helped us out with with this. It was a, a, a lucky find. I wrote to Criterion to say, "Hey, never mind." But <laughs> um, if you should happen happened. to find an extra copy or two, yeah, you if, know, if, if, you know I, I don't need it now. But if, if any of you decide to get rid of your collections, <laughs> um, and they were they were again responded and said that's that's awesome that's 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 a pretty cr- incredible way to get it and so anyway i just figured i guess it was just meant to be yeah but, um, you're watching the authorized edition not some kind of exactly. torrent rip or not some kind of you know region b import or anything this is yeah. the real deal so i wouldn't even know how to edition. do the other stuff but uh yeah. <laughs> i'm sure there's a listener or two out there who might be able to give us a tip but we don't really want to go down that road now do we, well, we don't we don't need to now this was exactly. this is the only out of print title um and and just so everyone knows criterion's not happy about this you know they recognize this as a special title even beyond just being a, a unique out of print title that th- this is a th- these are great films i mean um i didn't know very much about them going in i have seen other carlos sora movies other dance movies even he did he did flamenco in 1995 i watched that one with my wife um, and I think we, we liked it fine. And then he did Tango in 1998. I watched that one with my wife and, uh, I don't remember if we got too much out of that one. Um, but these three films, these, these from the early eighties, uh, the, these were, these were special. I, I loved it. And so I, they recognize that and they're very sad that it's out of print and that it's the only Eclipse series out of print right now. They, they think it's one of their strongest ones and, um, you know. There, there we are. So yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about that, just because I think you know the the status of being out of print and it being extra collectible, rare, scarce, you know, and and therefore pricey does it does kind of skew uh, 
the ability in some ways, maybe to those of us afflicted with that collector's mindset a little bit, uh, to just sort of sit and watch the films as they are. I mean, I, I definitely, I, I watch this um, and I, I possess this object, the, these three DVDs, knowing that there's a certain, you know, uh, distinction about them that, that, you know, puts them a little bit more coveted among the general population. Like, you know, oftentimes when I uh, am preparing to uh, you know podcast or review a film I might stick it in my uh, work bag my little briefcase thing uh, and just take it along with me uh, if you know if I have a little break time I might pop the disc in at work and watch it or you know just kind of you know listen to it uh, you know uh, in the background well I, I don't exactly do that with this I, I kind of take special care of it and everything and so <laughs> you know and and and, and even as a, as an episode I figure there may be some listeners. Uh, who tune into this podcast with some regularity but don't yet have a copy of these films uh, for their own listening. And so, you know, this is as much maybe a, a, a preview or even a, an enticement to say, yeah, look for them, find them where you can. Because I agree, Trevor, this this is a pretty extraordinary uh, trilogy, uh, three films that, you know, when I was, you know, sort of beginning, uh, my earnest exploration of the Eclipse series, uh, which for a time, even as I was trying to get the, the entire Criterion collection on DVD and eventually on Blu-ray, I didn't necessarily make the same commitment to Eclipse because it's like, man, I'm already committed to this one collection and, and, uh, Eclipse is just a you know these these boxes tend to be on the pricey side. Even though you get a lot of movies uh, for the buck, you know they're still listing at forty, fifty, sixty, seventy, sometimes or you know eighty or more uh, for the larger sets, and that you know that that's a that's a big chunk of change. Um, but I was you know very fortunate. I mean, I, I I'll just put it out there. I got my copy for free. It was a it was a part of a. A very generous uh, offering that Ryan Gallagher helped to set up for me when I agreed to start my journey through the Eclipse series column. And uh, his contact at uh, at uh, Orange Media Relations uh, sent a, a whole bunch of Eclipse boxes my way, and I'm forever grateful to that. And and uh, you know that's that really spurred me on not only to write about these films but now to podcast about them. That must uh, have been yeah. a, a really beautiful box. It was, yeah, there's somewhere <laughs> somewhere in my social media stream, I'd have to go really fishing for it. Uh, there's a photo out there of, uh, of that unboxing. Just, it's just a still shot uh, of just this mother load of Eclipse boxes. <laughs> and it really was. It was quite an extraordinary day. This was well, by far the most generous you know, comp stuff I'd ever received. Well, they, any, they knew what yeah. they were doing. Maybe they didn't know how it would turn out. But Well, I guess Eclipse has very, become... Yeah. You're you're a strong advocate. You you haven't yeah. you didn't just get them and do a couple and, and ditch it. So. No, no, I've I've inhabited <laughs> I've inhabited these films a bit and and made them a pretty significant part of my life and my creative uh, expression, if you will. So, but you know, at the same time, I, I guess to kind of complete the thought, I wasn't especially jazzed about this set. You know, my my uh, personal history with dance on film, or you know dance in general has been like, eh, it's interesting, but I, and I think partly because I just don't have the talent for it, you know, was, uh, you know, with, whereas with other things, you know, with music and, and, uh, you know, writing, there's always that aspect where I, I will kind of observe and, and, 
you know, p- ponder, you know, quality artistic expression as a way of saying, well, hmm, what, what kind of version of that can I do myself? You know, I like to write. I, I like to, you know, fiddle with music. I'm not really a talented musician, but, uh, you know, I, I still feel like I have an aptitude for it. Well, with dance, my body just doesn't move that way, you know. I, I, I mean, I, you know, especially when I was younger, I, I definitely, you know, like to shake it up and, and move around and, and, you know, just kind of get that workout in. But I was never disciplined or especially coordinated. And so I, I see dance on film and it's like I it's like a it's like a language from another uh, another species or something. But I've be, I've become a lot more um appreciative of it. I think you know Criterion's um dedication to some of these great works of of cinematic art involving dance have have definitely had a persuasive effect. I mean the red shoes uh, the Martha Graham dance on film, uh, Pena. Uh, they're still only they're, they're only 3D uh, Blu-ray release. Uh, you know these are are all pretty impressive works, and this in particular, this set, I think, really took my um, admiration for the dancer's art to a different level because I started to understand that these were not just films that are just kind of a showcase for showing off fancy dance moves. These are films really about the creative process and how the realities of our lives uh, and the traditions of our surrounding culture and the past, you know, uh, centuries of art really uh, shape the creative process and, and the expression of, you know, what's going on in the lives of these individual artists as well as how they come together as a collective to to make a, a powerful statement that speaks to their culture and their times and uh, and so you've really you, you know these films are really a, a, a summation of of really accomplished artists uh, in a multiple uh, in multiple fields of of dance obviously first and foremost but music and cinematography, um, and and even uh, experimenting with narrative forms uh, as, as the scripts uh, unfold, and and then also the way these three films kind of interact with each other by you know, using you know the same basic uh, cast members and mm-hmm. and stretching from uh, a very stripped down basic uh, setting, you know, kind of a rehearsal sequence uh, in the first film to kind of a blending of of uh, casting and real life drama and behind the scenes intrigues and then the artifice of the third film so yeah there's just so many levels of of uh of of material to contemplate here and and hopefully we'll have a good discussion and help unpack at least a few of those dimensions so yeah i i love this set and it is one that i think you know in a way does justify a little bit of that higher price point because it is scarce and rare. Uh, but it's also, these are just films of, of exceedingly um, enjoyable quality and, and extremely rewatchable, just like a, a favorite music album might be something you just put on just to kind of get into or even put on as as kind of uh, soul-stirring background music. These these films can function in the same way. You don't have to watch them you know, with a close eye for detail. You can just sort of let them be part of the ambience of your home or, or your environment, wherever you, wherever you might be able to watch them, and uh, just kind of feel that vibe and, and enjoy the energy that it brings into your day. So yeah, a few 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 general opening thoughts. Uh, yeah, tell me more about your your overall impressions of the set, and we can start to break it down a little bit more. Yeah, well, 
I didn't know very much about it uh, going into it, as happens to be the case with most of these. Um, so I popped in Blood Wedding, and boy, I was just engaged. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I've, I, I watched some dance on film because my wife likes likes them. Um, but these these did more for me than a lot of the ones that I have watched. They because. There, there's such a, a strong collaboration between the filmmakers and the dancers. And as they're both telling the story, they just seem to have worked together so well, you know, encouraging each other to, to do what they do best. And so I, I was I was captivated. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and then we move on to Carmen, which I didn't like it as much. And we'll get into a little bit of maybe why, uh, but still just really. And, and it was, I, I love these eclipse sets where you do start to see familiar faces pop up. Um, I loved getting into Carmen and seeing a lot of the people from Blood Wedding showing up and in different roles and doing different things. Uh, so that was really nice just to see that, boy, this was a, a great time, you know, for a lot of these people and as far as artistic endeavor and, um, and output was going. And, uh, then we get into El Amor Brujo, which, uh, really surprised me again because it's quite different uh, than the first two um, in many ways uh, but again just so refreshing to see the same people because I'd grown to just really enjoy what they could do to me you know as far as their their dancing and their expressions and you know the stories are good but they kind of fall by the wayside a little bit um, and it becomes more just about these these emotions that these people are displaying through through dance and boy that was they're they're very strong um i didn't know anything about the the main choreographer who is antonio gades uh but one of uh, spain's uh, most celebrated flamenco dancers and he you know to the point where if you look him up on wikipedia there's you know a nice bronze statue of him somewhere in spain um you know just a a great artistic uh, figure for this uh, cultural um treasure of this flamenco dancing and to to see him pop up in each of the films and to kind of watch him uh in the different roles because he he does play aspects of of his own persona uh as being a choreographer or a dance director in in most of the films and so it's just really fun to see them all engaging with this creativity and to say what can we do here uh, and it it was particularly delightful for me in Blood Wedding. I just thought that, that one came across um, th the best for me. But I, I loved seeing how they kind of changed things up and said, okay, what can we do with this one? What, what, how can we further um, play with this, uh, this, this meeting of film and flamenco? Uh, as they moved on and so yeah very strong in fact you, you asked at the end of last week how i ranked the oshima set and i kind of put it i think on the second tier this one right now is in my top 10 out of um mm. 32 34 33 i don't know somewhere in there that we've done so far so that puts it in my top uh, top tier basically i i really enjoyed it really really you know uh, really had a nice emotional response and just a great aesthetic experience as I, as I watched them just, uh, just really, and, and really felt like it opened up some things too. I don't know anything about flamenco dancing. Um, and I still don't know anything about it, um, per se, you know, it's history and it's, and particulars about its technique. 
but now I've seen, you know, a, a few pieces of, of art that, that showcase it. And it, it just, it really, it worked on me. I, I enjoyed it. So I was, I was thrilled to be introduced to it a little bit more. As I said earlier, I've seen Flamenco, the other Carlos Sora movie. Um, and nothing of that stands out to me. Mm. Uh, but this one, you know, the, the, their style, everything just seemed to go together with these stories and, uh, it's fun to watch and to kind of get a sense, I think, through watching these dancers do do their thing over and over and over again as to, you know, what they're trying to accomplish through this this particular dance style. And I think we'll we'll get into that a little bit more um, as we talk about the particular films and what they're what they're doing. But but, yeah, I, I, I was thrilled to see um, Antonio Gades. Uh, I was excited each with each new film you know to see him show up again and to think you know what 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 role is he going to play and and dang it when is he going to dance because <laughs> I, I just really enjoyed watching uh his kind of prowling dance style out there so yeah his his, his dignity and his his yeah. strength and his intensity that's that those are probably well, adjectives i'm going to wear out <laughs> as i talk yeah. about the films Go and, ahead, and it's such a mixture because it's all that there's dignity but a kind of animalism as well. I mean, they, oh, they yeah. look like um, animals about to have a, a major encounter. I mean, they don't blink. They stare each other in the eyes. And there's just this focus that, yeah. that's really primal. And, it, you know, they circle each other around. It's just it really is uh, like two beings trying to size each other up. Mm-hmm. And how are we going to interact today? And, and they're, they're very good at uh, portraying. Um, all kinds of emotions and all of them at once that make uh, a bit of uh, that they feel right. I'm, I'm gonna say they make sense as if there's some way for me to articulate it logically what they're doing, but it just feels right. <laughs> I guess is a better way of putting it because well, it there's does. something there's something yeah. primal and um, uh, about this mixture, and uh, it all just really really came together nicely for me. Well, I think I think these films really do uh, operate on a very kind of instinctive and visceral level. Even as spectators, you're drawn in because you know your your pulse just quickens. You you sense the 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 danger, the eroticism, the, the you know the the, uh, the the riskiness. I mean, even though there's a lot of discipline, and this is obviously the fruit of countless hours of practice and refining of technique and and taking hard feedback and you know really you know kind of pounding your body into shape to do these things and to do them you know meticulously correct and in sync with the music and in sync with your fellow dancers and to everybody knowing their specific role their part their function what we're seeing on screen didn't just kind of fall into place this isn't just a bunch of people out there shaking their groove thing you know this mm-hmm. this is a very specific uh language that's been developed over the course of you know decades or even centuries and and you know these films were sort of like the the contemporary expression of that i'm sure the 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 form has continued to evolve but but like you trevor and and even like carlos sora himself when he started making these movies you know we are not the experts on dance and so uh you know it, this might have been a nice episode to find that <laughs> guest who who could really kind of illuminate even more in depth what's going on here. But the truth is, these these films do give you a very uh, you know insightful, though I'm sure somewhat uh, you know uh, 
you know, well-crafted and uh, I'm sure there's its own forms of artifice here, but they, they do catch you into a dancer's world. They do show you what it's like behind the scenes. This isn't just, you know, kind of, uh, you know, an MGM Hollywood production where it's all, you know, surface flash and, and pure entertainment. Swooping cameras and right. fast edits and... Right. Well, there there is definitely some some great camera work, but... but be, absolutely. But this isn't, this isn't like the... the you know the, the the surface level. This is kind of peeking behind the curtain a bit uh, into that creative process. But but let's talk a little bit about Carlos Sora because he is the guy whose name is right on there on the cover, uh, and he is a, a a national treasure, if you will, of, of Spanish cinema and and uh, you know a director who's got a little bit of representation in Criterion. Uh, his 1975 film Cria Cuervos. Uh, is a DVD only release and an earlier film of his peppermint frappe uh, was uh, is available on the Hulu channel and that's one that I actually wrote about uh, it's from 1967 I believe and I wrote about that last year on my uh, criterion reflections blog when that's other than these three films that's the only Carlos sort of movie that I've seen um, is peppermint frappe I've not yet gotten around to Korea Cuervos and I haven't seen any of these newer titles that Trevor's referred to uh, but he's He's probably released somewhere in the neighborhood of 45 or 50 titles as I kind of glance quickly at his Wikipedia page. He is still alive, and he has uh, two films that are listed as 2016 productions, even though the Wikipedia link is red right now. Uh, but there's one that's still in pre-production. So he is, uh, you know, even though he was born 1932, so that uh, that puts him in his uh, kind of approaching his mid-80s now. He's uh, still a creative presence and still out there. Um, making new art. So this is another kind of a unique aspect of, of the Eclipse series. A lot of the Eclipse directors, uh, if they're not, you know, passed on, um, they're just not as prolific maybe now. I mean, Aki Korsmaki is maybe the only other one that comes to mind as as uh, still producing, of course, Chantal Ackerman, who we'll be talking about next month. Uh, she, you know, quite tragically passed away last year. Uh, but other than that, you know, most of the Eclipse films are, are by directors who are no longer with us. But Carlos Sora very much is. And that is amazing, you know, to be in your mid-80s and still uh, not only producing films, but he's got one title that apparently has been released already and another one, you know, in, in, in on its way. So <laughs> uh, good on him. Um, but, yeah, Carlos Sora, uh, he... he um, you know, has basically come. Of, he came of age during the Franco years, and his earlier films tended to be a little bit more on the, you know, social, dramatic, uh, historic side. Although Peppermint Frappe definitely has some kind of surrealist type of t- overtones to it, and some some very unique uh, moments there. But as he uh, was just searching for material, and and I think he actually. Uh, watched of one of these flamenco uh, shows, the, these performances that Antonio Gaddis had put on, and I think he was just visually entranced and started imagining the possibilities of what it would be like to capture this art on film. And it it, it was the beginning of this very productive and, and uh, you know, very rewarding uh, artistic partnership between Gaddis and Sora. And that's basically what we have here in these three films. Those are the only three films that they made together. And I don't know that they had a falling out. I think they just kind of reached the end of their of their partnership. 
and moved out in other directions and probably for a good reason. They didn't want to beat this thing to the ground. And, and I think they really explored a lot of different angles. Each of these films, like I say, they're interconnected with each other, uh, but they, they can be watched in different orders, I suppose. It's not like it's a one story being told over the course of three films. But I think it's best to watch them in order because you sort of get the, the sense of progression and even the sense of, of aging. Uh, when you think about uh, the dancer's art, you know, this is, this is an art where... Uh, the passage of time definitely does take its toll. It's kind of like athletics. You know, there's a certain prime of life where you're just going to be better than you will be when you're older. And and, uh, and you sense a little bit of that kind of aging process uh, as as we get deeper into these films. Uh, the, most of the dancers are, are young and beautiful and, of course, an, an impeccable physical condition because flamenco is a is a is a dance form where, you know, your your muscle control and your precision and your timing just has to be spot on. And if you're not, there's somebody in the troupe who's going to take your place and there's even a, a competition within it. And that kind of plays in uh, in, in, in the Carmen film in particular. But let's start, uh, I don't know, anything more you wanted to say about Carlos Sor? Like you say, you've seen a few of his other films, but uh, just a little bit of background on the director is always kind of nice to, to lead off the episode with. No, I don't. I don't really have anything else other yeah. than it seems from the the liner notes and, and some things I've read that he he wasn't, you know, he didn't know anything about the dance either. Right. You know, he he went into this thinking, oh, I'll go see this dance show, and sure, there's Antonio Gades, probably had heard of him, um, but yeah, there he was captivated as well. And um, from everything that I've read, and I I didn't like go into this exhaustively, but it sounds like they got along great. Yeah. Um, and really encouraged each other to to do their thing, and I'll I'll do my thing, and you know we'll work together here, um, you know, and, and it didn't seem to step on each other's toes, uh, and just uh, really worked hard to to create uh, um, these compatible and uh, complementary uh, styles to to go together. And uh, so it, it just felt like a really great um, union there. And, and, yeah, I didn't read anything about any kind of falling out or any problems that they may have had, um, you know. And, and I think that at the end of El Amor Brujo, I can kind of see why they said, okay, you know, we, we, we've done it. We've done what we, what we set out to do. We made, we made three films that, that kind of do show an artistic progression as we attempt to get this dance on screen. And uh, frankly, I'm kind of glad that they ended it there because I, I do think that these films are more successful than his other, you know, the other few dance movies of his that I've seen. Um, they Those just felt a little bit more artificial and a little bit more, uh, you know, like many other dance on films that I've seen or even yeah, dance on kind TV. Of a, kind of a showcase for yeah, the performers. Which and is you fine. Just, you, you admire it for what it is, but uh-huh. it doesn't have that kind of you know, kind of soul grabbing aspect that these films really do. I mean, there's something, I mean, even though, again, I'm not a dancer, I'm not a, I'm not a professional artist on this level, but I'm so drawn in and so intrigued by, by the tensions of, of these stories. And, and so, uh, yeah, yeah. I've, so, you know, I, I have included, as I always do, uh, some background links. If you want to read more about Carlos Sora, uh, there's a few articles and interviews. He, he seems to be a pretty, lively mind uh, very, very very easy to, to laugh at himself and he's got some great stories of of a you know pretty long career I mean he's been making movies since like the, the late 1950s you know so yeah, this yeah. guy is a I'm sure you know very worthy of, of 
further exploration. I don't know that there's a lot more of his uh, older stuff that's that's easily available, at least to American audiences. Uh, but uh, you know, after after revisiting this set, I think you know Crea Cuervos may need to bump its way up on my priority list just to sort of see another aspect of of his work. I know Ryan's a fan of that film and uh, Carlos Sora and Spanish cinema in general, so maybe I'll have to tap him on the shoulder and get some tips as to where else I might see some of his stuff. But yeah, let's go ahead and get into the first film, Blood Wedding. Trevor, why don't we just go ahead and let you kind of talk about that a little bit? That seems to be the one that perhaps left the strongest impression. Uh, it was kind it, it, of your first acquaintance. So uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about what you saw there. Wedding is is actually the it, it's well okay. Let me step back just a second. Um, it's an original work uh, from an original play written by Federico Garcia Lorca uh, back in the 1930s that had you know been done in various styles and and it's a it's a fairly um, it, it, not to say that it's simplistic but it's a familiar concept behind the the, the work. It's a uh, you know, two families who are kind of feuding, um, and there's a, a wedding, <laughs> but, uh, but the, the young lady was, um, kind of the lover of one, you know, one of the, the men of the other family. And, uh, so there's these, these, these problems, but she weds someone who's, you know, a decent fellow and, um, and who's all, you know, very much against the other family, um, but the the young woman cannot get away from her lover. She doesn't want to. I'm not trying to say that he was you know pursuing her, uh, though he was. But it was it was willing. She she did not want to end her relationship with this kind of uh, rival person, even though, you know, in a way, it's her husband's her new husband's sworn enemy. And you know, so there's a there's a, a rivalry and um, and a duel in a way and. Uh, that's that's the play. There's a lot more to it uh, from what I've read. I've never read the play itself, as far as you know some of the details. But the this uh, this is a play that uh, that Antonio Gades decided to adapt into into a, a flamenco dance and uh, perform it. And uh, I believe this is the the dance that um, Carlos Sora went to see and was just kind of blown away by it, just really intrigued. And, and that's where the collaboration started. That's why they chose to do this one first. And so it was just this, uh, this kind of, again, it, it, when I say it's a basic story, it's also kind of a basic human story. I mean, the, these rivalries and these, these unions and, um, and problems within the unions, those are familiar themes and stories because, you know, they're familiar in life and there's something basic and primal about them and the emotions that can, can guide you into these pathways where there's the revenge and the lust and, and the inability to let go because of all the, the you know, the, the jealousy or the passion or whatever's going on there. And, uh, boy, it just seemed to really work for the flamenco routine that they put together. Um, this a lot of... Uh, uh, you get the sense as you watch it that their bodies, as controlled as they are at any moment, could just lash out and and 
and go mad. Yes, um, that, that coiled, pent-up yes, energy just yes. ready to spring loose, right? So it's pretty great. But the, the film doesn't just do it. It isn't just an adaptation of, of the the ballet or the the flamenco dance it's not just um carlos sora going in there and saying okay i'll 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 run around the stage with my camera um you guys do it and i'll i'll capture this now he actually starts with antonio gade showing up at the studio flipping on the lights uh, uh going around turning on all the dressing um the lights the dressing in the dressing room for each of the dancers who are going to come in and I didn't know who he was at that moment, but, you know, I didn't know if he was maybe even just the janitor for <laughs> going in and doing this. But you get this sense that he, he's preparing for something, you know, and then the crowd arrives and they're boisterous and and they kind of change the tone quite a bit. And we sit down um, and watch them perform a few things and get ready for for a dress rehearsal of Blood Wedding. Uh, which is how the show eventually, I'd say after, I don't know, it's a, it's a short show, about 70 minutes, but I think it, uh, we don't start the dance um, of the actual, the dress rehearsal. We see some dancing, but we don't start the dress rehearsal until we're about 20, 25 minutes into yeah, the, I think into pretty the much a Yeah, pretty much a half hour in. Yeah. With, I mean, and so, yeah, that's the thing. The, the story, you know, the story that you kind of summarized pretty well there, it kind of sneaks up on you. I mean, when you first start watching, it's kind of like, you we're in the dressing room and they're putting on their makeup and <laughs> what's this blood wedding <laughs> right right they're getting you know they're getting some pretty good shots you know because i'm you know as i'm sitting here looking at antonio gades and he's there's kind of a little voiceover narration talking yeah. about how he yeah. got into dance and so you're you're kind of starting you know your your first point of access is this individual this this guy who you know perhaps to a lot of the original viewers was a familiar presence sort of like you drop names like oh, i don't know rudolf nuriev or somebody like that which to the you know the casual dance fan or even somebody who's just kind of culturally aware says oh yeah i, I know the name but i'm not particularly into it well you know antonio gaddis probably had that kind of reputation some people considered him even then kind of a living legend others were like oh yeah, I've, I've heard of that guy uh, well here he is kind of telling a little bit of his story you know as a as a child he's working and you know working on the streets and kind of you know carving out his little niche in the world and then he sort of stumbles into dance himself and becomes an incredible master of it but that's that's how we're sort of beginning and you know there's all these kind of interesting shots of him sort of looking into you know what you would assume is the mirror but of course that's a camera that this is right mm-hmm. in front of him but there's all these mirrors around but i don't see any cameras so uh you know sora was very very good at concealing his crew and and uh you know, just kind of framing the shots there but, yeah so then we're getting into the rehearsal you know this crowd you mentioned those are the other dancers just coming in and preparing themselves so you see that whole ritual of you know, of makeup and hair and and even just that you know getting dressed there's a certain gracefulness and beauty um, that these artists go about it, and, and you can just tell that this this really is a consuming passion for for each of them. They 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 may be just you know the 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 eighth or tenth member of a of a crew of a big lineup of dancers, but 
each of them really brings a meticulous energy and strength and passion in, into that performance. And so, you know, yeah, the first or few times through, your your eyes might be fixed on those lead figures. But just watch the background dancers. Watch what they're doing. Uh, even if they're not in the spotlight, they're still doing some pretty amazing stuff. And, you know, that's, that's probably true for a lot of a lot of dance movies. But uh, as I've watched these films several times, uh, I just find myself sinking more and more into all all the stuff that's going on in the background. And, again, that's what makes them so rewatchable. And so mm-hmm. as, as this rehearsal kind of gets underway, uh, you know – you're you're sort of in that behind the scenes uh, view of things, but of course, what's what's presented to us as a rehearsal is indeed a performance. I mean, these these dancers know they're being filmed, and this is a final take. This isn't just a a rough draft. Um, but there's there is a little bit of that lack of polish, and and so how much of that is them? acting as if this is just a rehearsal <laughs> i mean you know so you start getting into some of this reflexivity this kind of postmodern what's what's art what's reality what's nature and what's artifice you know and so that these thoughts this kind of um kind of playing with that line between um art and just you know life doing its own thing they continue to be amplified and 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 played with over the course of these you know these next couple films. So you're right. It's it's about a half an hour of okay, folks. Here's what we do, and and you sort of see the discipline, the the coaching that goes on, and you know hold it together and move your head this way, and and you know it it, it draws the casual viewer into an appreciation that every single move here is something deliberate, calculated that. Uh, yeah. They've rehearsed this whole sequence, and and I it just it is it's amazing to me that you know these dances can go on for five, ten, fifteen, twenty minutes, and you know they're just they just keep on on track on form here uh, to to make sure that there's no flubs, there's no mistakes, there's no kind of dropping into this kind of casual, relaxed attitude. They're 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 severe and and they're focused this entire time and it's you know I, I i can imagine again i haven't seen a lot of live dance uh, ballet on this level but that would be pretty Im- impressive to see that whole performance done right in front of you so again it's just another little nudge like maybe i should go check some of this stuff out in person and, and get a little bit more of this uh, culture into my experience yeah, I, I love how you brought up their their rehearsal before the dress rehearsal. Yeah, <laughs> you know, as the, <laughs> as uh, Goddess is is going through some moves with them, and you know, it, it's very granular. It isn't just like okay, then you know, try to hit this beat. It's turn your head this way. You know, lift your chin up another inch. Um, right. You know, your arm should be um, out at this point. You know, fall uh, you know, uh, uh, just another half second before you put your foot out to catch yourself. I mean, this is very disciplined, and yeah. it really seems to focus. That that to me is one of the strengths of the of the stories that they're telling. These, these stories of passion is you, you see that control and discipline, which again I'll, I'll get into when we talk about the end of um, mm-hmm. of the film of, of Blood Wedding. Just this immense control um, that really works with the kinds of stories that they're telling of people who, you know, have to hold their passion back just a little bit. But it's, it, you know, 
there's going to be someone who dies. <laughs> you know, there's oh, going to yeah, be yeah. some problems. There's going to be some duels, and um, and it just really is impressive to see how they are able to 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 perform to per- practice so much that rather than seeming like it's a practice dance, it seems like a natural expression of human emotion, which is you know just just fantastic. I, you know, I, and I think sometimes that's one of the the issues, not an issue that I've had with dance on film. I'm just not an expert, but you know sometimes you can see people acting out their their emotions in dance. And you can tell that they're just acting out their emotions in dance. You know, they, they, they're they, doing they steps seem to be in or yes. moves, right? Yeah, they've been they've been coached to that point. Um, and here you see how this goes even further. To to you, you need to get rid of the of the of the visibility of the craft itself. You need to become so good that people can't see that, and it just just beautiful just beautiful to watch this dance i i would so the, the film starts out with this kind of um uh sepia toned photograph of a, of a wedding party you know everyone kind of sitting there and i love how that all comes to together with here's the dancers you know here's the company um together for this moment for this special d- dress rehearsal that we're going to witness so it plays with that line between who these people really are in real life the dancing the company and the, the movie, you know, there's almost another level there. And um, the story that they're telling, how it plays into that. It's just, it, it, it was definitely my favorite of the set because it was so shocking to me how all of it came together. And um, and again, I think part of it too, maybe maybe because it was my introduction to Gades, um and to, you know, seeing him flipping on the lights to seeing him being the impassioned uh, lover in the in the dance itself was just really powerful to to watch him coaching and go okay who so who are you mr big shot <laughs> you know obviously you're the coach and i can't tell the difference between you and the other dancers behind you even though you're instructing them because i'm just i don't have that eye um but then to see him perform it's like oh, okay that's that's why everyone's listening to you you know, yeah. The, oh, yeah. He definitely knows how to hold center stage. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And, and I think you know, we, we were talking a little bit about the emotions and and how they come through, and that's the, that's one of the differences. I think if you think about you know classical ballet, or at least my experience of watching it, sometimes those emotions are powerful, but these emotions in these flamenco films are extremely passionate, lusty, earthy, violent, aggressive. And so to channel those types of emotions, especially we think about in, in you know con- conventional cinema, often that's kind of expressions of, of rage and, and eros and, you know, people just kind of letting go and, and, and going nuts <laughs> in various ways. And, and here everything still remains so channeled and so intense um, you know to 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 have such strong emotions kind of ready to burst out of your physicality and yet everything is still so measured and and disciplined and controlled uh, that I think that adds to the tension and and creates such a fascination 
uh, for the viewer. And, and yeah, and Blood mm-hmm. Wedding definitely, you know, kind of brings us to that, you know, incredible climactic scene where after we've sort of gone through this intrigue, and I think, you know, one of the other tensions in that in that storyline is is the fate of a woman who's been pledged to a man that she doesn't love. And that, that theme kind of comes back in the last film as well. Um, but, you know, that's, that's, that's one of the dilemmas. And even though it's not really played upon, you know, uh, as to where that pledge came from or how she got herself locked into that, you know, into that marriage that really isn't what she desires, uh, you, you sort of see the tension. There's a different man that she loves, but she has to go through with it. You know, mother's right there to make sure she does what she's supposed to do, and the whole village is crowded around her to kind of put her in her place. And and so there's a, there, I guess, I don't know if this is a feminist message or just a uh, a message uh, uh, just about the humanity of allowing people to, you know, pursue their dreams and, 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 uh, and love who they do. Uh, you know, maybe I'm reading that with a little bit of a 21st century twist, but I think that that that's clearly there. Uh, these these two men who both seem, you know, to, well, they both do have a claim on this woman's heart and affections and loyalties. They they square off, and of course, you know, she she breaks away from the wedding, and and then they have this kind of a pursuit on horseback, so to speak. You know, <laughs> for pretty pretty cool. You, you know, first you see them sort of prancing and sliding well, along, you, you, but what you is hear that? The, yeah. You hear the beat. Because the, yeah, yeah. the the other dancers, the the other people in the company, step aside and step off the stage, but they're providing the beats, you know, with their yeah. feet, they're snapping their fingers or they're clipping their heels, and you're like, well, that sounds kind of like a horse. And then the camera yeah. pans over, and there's there, there they are on horse, you know, not really on horseback, but right. pretending to take her away on the horse, but and really so creating that illusion. <laughs> and it's, it's quite fascinating. And of course, then the big showdown comes. You want to just talk a little bit about that? I mean, it's a pretty well, yeah, powerful, I mean, just, powerful scene. Just at this moment when, you know, we've been watching all of this control on their faces, you know, Antonio Gades in particular has a way of drawing out his face and making it longer as if he's just holding something back. And, <laughs> you know, and here's this moment of this duel between the the rivals and you think that it's going to maybe be an explosion, but it's the exact opposite. Instead of, of exploding into these fast, you know, slices and with the, it's the knife fight, um, they do it in slow motion. And they're lifting up their legs high and moving gracefully from one foot pivoting around to the other one. And it it's, 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 it's just fascinating to watch that amount of control as they're doing this act, which, you know, is something kind of out of control. And they, the strength, I can't imagine. I mean, I was exhausted at the end of that, yeah, that scene yeah. um, because it just, I, I was first off tense, you know, I didn't care who won uh, the duel or I, and I even thought I probably knew what would happen and I did, but there's just so much emotion going on there. And then to watch their dancing and, and realize that, wow, they're leaning and, and roll, you know, kind of roaming around that room and fighting in just this very graceful slow motion, which maybe one of the most skilled slow motion, you know, mimics i've ever seen usually oh, there's moments of jerkiness in someone's performance but then those guys where they should be because they're you know again dancing at the same time 
there should be more jerkiness and more moments where your body just has to move faster. Or the force you know, of gravity, gravity pulls yes. you down to the floor, <laughs> you know, or, or gets your knees to wobble a little bit or, or yeah. something. But, but yeah. they've calculated every balance point to perfection so that they can just move around that way. And it, it, it was beautiful. The best moment of the trilogy for me well, um, is, was uh, that explosion into that intense, you know, focus on what these men were doing. That was just uh, beautifully done. And even, I, I loved it. And, and even Christina Hoyos in the background as yeah. the woman who's watching her two lovers, <laughs> you know, in this mortal combat. And, and she's and she's got this long take where she's yeah. throwing her head down into her hands, you know, because she doesn't want to watch. And even her dress is balanced nicely because mm-hmm. it falls gracefully and kind of slowly as she's moving her her center of gravity around. Um, but to watch her in the background, yeah, that. I, I loved it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Even the fabrics are well choreographed, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and you know, the the attire, the wardrobe, the lines that these men's bodies make. I mean, well, the women as well. I mean, all of them are are just in, in really excellent shape. I mean, that that almost goes without saying. But but they position themselves so that their bodies are just forming these unique planes and, mm-hmm. and angles and and shapes and and even the way that they're they're choreographed so that you sometimes see like you know two legs and they kind of overlap each other on the film and this is again where Sora's filmmaking kind of really captures them at just the right angle and and sometimes he's moving the camera and sort of getting you caught up in the swirl sometimes the camera is very static and allowing the tableau just to kind of you know fill the screen from different sides and and come together but you know sometimes the 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 bodies form these kind of weird multi-limbed shapes and characters themselves as they kind of mix and match themselves on the screen so there's yeah there's there's beautiful visual compositions that are happening in space but also in the second dimension on the flat screen you know mm-hmm. so yeah the, the the colors and and even the kind of the arid atmospheres of of these sets you know this is basically just a uh you know wooden floor with a big mirrored wall on one side windows on the other for some natural light to get in yeah it just it's just a, a kind of a sparse environment and yet it's a place that it's because, almost bloodless it's white well, it, it is yeah it's right it's it's so it's so sterile in some ways not not you know pure white but it's just it's so and a ordinary. dusty white yeah, almost. a dusty white right and it, it allows your imagination though to fill in so much of that space with with all the other details and and also just to focus on the power of the of the movement without getting caught up in you know fancy set designs and ornamentation of different sorts so yeah, yeah, it's a it's a seventy one minute film altogether. You know, you can just clip right forward to the story itself, or even select scenes. And I've certainly done that on a few occasions. I just want to, you know, hear a song or or uh, replay a certain scene, or or like I said earlier, just you know, put it on as background. But uh, yeah, the, the, these films, as you sort of get familiar with them, kind of have those special moments, those 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 highlights, or let, let's put that track on and 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 give it a spin again. Well, speaking of one scene, well, one one segment that I cannot figure out how they did it um, was in the knife fight in slow motion when the camera is spinning around them. So yeah. the walls on the on in the back are, are are spinning, but the characters themselves are kind of stationary in the frame. So they're spinning somehow in slow motion, and I never saw a cut that showed that. Oh, here they they actually 
and, and maybe there is one that says, okay, here, we're going to bring out the, the merry-go-round and you stand on it and we'll, we'll spin you. Um, I didn't see that cut. So I have no idea how they were kind of spinning hmm. um, and staying, you know, stationary in the, in the frame of the camera that's, that's rotating around them. I've seen similar, they're always kind of miraculous um, cuts when you see those. Uh, you know, Fastbinder has one in particular that I think is just uh, amazing. This, you know, approaching two characters who are about to, you know, who kind of hate each other and they're sizing each other up and the camera spins around them, but they themselves are spinning. It's just a beautifully choreographed thing. Um, and that's kind of how this one was, but I don't know how, I don't, I don't know how they pulled it off because again, just that it's, it's a moment where the dancers and the, the filmmaker just kind of came together in this really really wonderful way to create these effects where the film itself, the frame of the film is, is doing a lot of work for us. There's another moment where the, you know, he, he's playing with those, um, I can't remember the name. What's the, the zoom where you're zooming in on the person, but you're also pan, panning the camera a little bit and moving the camera. So yeah, that I, it I, looks I, like the background is, is either regressing or, or coming right at you, but the it's kind of that scary movie shot, right? Where, yeah. Yeah. Kind of this telescoping and reverse. Thing. Yes. I, yeah, I can't remember a, the name of that, yeah. but uh, there, there's a moment where it's doing that very subtly, more subtly than, than Scorsese does it in Goodfellas. It, it, it's, it's almost like the, the frame, you know, she should be trembling. It's a, it's a shot of the woman and she should be trembling but it's actually the frame of the camera that's trembling, as if she's more exuding this energy mm. and making things around her tremble a little bit. It's just beautiful. Well, you're and, pointing and, out some stuff that I'm going to have to go back and rewatch and, and it, latch on to some of that. But, but you're right. There's just a, a lot of that type of uh, and, subtle and craftsmanship very, very going subtle. on here. Yeah, but it's, and, it's it's brilliant when you notice it. Mm. And, that, and I think that's why this one stood out to me more, is that the artifice of the camera work was a little bit more in service of just the story and of the dancing. Whereas later on, you can tell that he's more playing with what can we do with the, what, what illusions can we capture? And, you know, you start to see more of the artifice of the filmmaking itself. Um, yeah. Kind of to show filmmaking, not dancing. And, um, and so that's one of, another reason I liked this one the best. It just, it just all seemed to come together in this beautiful way. I don't know. Yeah, well, no, there's a certain impressive minimalism to Blood Wedding. Uh, both its brevity, it's also shot in the 4-3 ratio, whereas the other two are kind of more the, you know, conventional widescreen. You almost wonder if that first uh, Blood Wedding film was maybe meant as a TV production or something. I mean, because it's, it's a little late in the game uh, to be shooting in, you know, the 4-3. Uh, but yet Sora did, and, and maybe that was his original plan for distribution. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting take. So, or maybe just by boxing it in a little bit more just focuses the, the eye like you know, right on on that you know, that kind of centrality yeah. of the dancers. Mm -hmm. Well, it certainly works with the set where there's that one big, huge window in the background that's you know, yeah, that the camera kind of returns to again and again to kind of recenter re us uh, after we've been moving around the crowd a little bit. You know, it brings us back to that point, and that really works with the four three aspect ratio in a, in a way that I don't know if it would as well with a, a wider wider aspect ratio. Now, again, I. I you, I didn't even think about that, so um, it'd be interesting to know if that was 
a deliberate artistic decision or more one of uh, form and uh, what what where we were expecting to exhibit this film. I don't know. I'd, I'd like to look into that. Yeah, well, we'll you know, maybe do a little bit more follow-up or see if there's any uh, listeners who might have a comment on that as well. But how about if we move on to Carmen just to kind of move things along here? Uh, this is a film that actually was, was a, a pretty popular success. It, it did earn an Academy Award nomination in 1984 as Best Foreign Language Film. It did not win. Uh, Fanny and Alexander by the great Ingmar Bergman took home the honors, and I think that's that's fine. That's, 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 that's <laughs> a very very uh, well deserved award. But I think I think Carmen actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, Carlos Sora's version of Carmen was very worthy of consideration, and I think uh, you know I I actually enjoyed this film quite a bit, although it is you know a bit more on the conventional side of uh, you know kind of a a. You know, a story. Well, conventional is probably not a very good word to use, actually, because it's it's very unique, and that it's not a you know just a cinematic adaptation of uh, Bizet's you know very famous and classic opera uh, by that name. The music does make periodic visits <laughs> into mm-hmm. the soundtrack, and the story kind of recapitulates um, the the Carmen legend and and sort of mythos of this uh, hot-blooded, enticing young gypsy woman who, you know, has the ability to sort of drive men mad just by the power of her attraction and her charisma, uh, even though the men know they're kind of falling into a trap and, and uh, you know... And therefore but, their lust is also filled with resentment and exactly right hateful lust. Right. They, they must have her, but they despise her because they see what she's doing, and yet they also want to possess her they want to have her under their control it's kind of this you know really highly pitched battle of the sexes a a woman who seems you know too good to resist but but uh, too untamable to ever fully domesticate and trust and and what's a man to do when he finds himself in 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 such clutches you know Uh, you know there's all sorts of moral lessons i suppose that people could draw of of a certain temperament or attitude but uh you know the, the the story of carmen is actually pretty pretty well known and has been the basis for a lot of other adaptations uh, even even in Japanese cinema, I think the very first uh, uh, color film made in Japan was an, an adaptation of the Carmen story. You know, mm. and, and Carmen has this kind of really global, just just the name or the character, if you will, sort of has this global resonance about the the temptress who uh, will just lead a man to his doom. I mean, she's kind of one of the original femme fatales, sort of like a. Delilah or uh, uh, Salome and from biblical uh, you know stories, uh, but the woman who basically is is uh, you know so attractive that uh, she's just basically a force of doom once she comes into a man's life. Uh, well, this story uh, kind of goes again back into that behind the scenes um, uh, perspective of of uh, 
Antonio, who's Antonio Gaddis, of course, kind of playing a version of himself, uh, who has the idea, the inspiration to do a flamenco adaptation of of Bizet's ballet Carmen, and so uh, they're rescoring the music, they're putting it on flamenco guitar. And he's in the process of, of casting and, and putting the troupe together that will do this performance. And at the beginning of the film, he's got a you know probably a dozen or more you know beautiful young Spanish dancers of all different sorts, and they're out there. And he's he's you know again going back to blood wedding, kind of coaching them and and putting them through their moves and giving them a very critical scrutiny as to who might be his leading lady and and uh, who might be the star of this new production. And he's just not finding the right person and and again Christina Hoyos the uh, the 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 lead female performer dancer in Blood Wedding she's there and and she's pretty clearly his his top woman in in the true crew and and uh, really his right-hand assistant and he says as much to her but she's just not right for the role of Carmen and the implication is that she's kind of too old and maybe not quite sexy enough. You know, you've got to, you know, you certainly, when you're casting a role like Carmen, you have to have somebody who looks and fits the part. And so I understand the, you know, the, the pressure and, and what's, uh, what's at stake when you're, when you're casting a role of this, you know, voluptuous, desirable beauty. Uh, but she's got to have the, you know, she can't just be pretty. She's got to be powerful and kind of that that animal energy that you spoke of earlier you know where you know if the audience is sitting you know 25 rows back in the theater don't sort of have their eyes fixed on on your carmen the production's just not gonna you know sell uh, to the degree that it, that it should and so casting that role uh, requires just you know some patience and 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 yet there's some disappointment because the woman you know uh, christina who is very capable of doing the dances is kind of getting the subtle message. You know, you're just, you're just not the right one and please try to understand. And so even though she's dedicated to this team and, and to this production, uh, you know, how can you not have a sense of disappointment that, um, you know, the, the, the man you've been working so closely with, it doesn't really quite believe you're the one. Uh, so that's, that's a little bit of the background there, but then as he and his uh, partner are out there, you know, kind of combing through the dance classes here and there and uh, far and wide, uh, suddenly here comes the Carmen. And her name is Carmen, is a character. And uh, she's uh, kind of young, uh, very sexy, but also kind of a raw character. I mean, her dancing isn't quite as skilled as it could be. Uh, she's definitely got the attitude, the, the fire in her eyes. And, uh, and uh, you know, the, the sense of independence that she's going to do it her way or no way at all. And she is the one that uh, Antonio decides to bring into the production as, as the leading lady. And now he not only has to sort of tame her into shape as a dancer, he has to entrust his uh, aide, Christina, to sort of be... Uh, Carmen's coach and and teaching Carmen her dances so that she can be ready to do the production. Well, on top of all that, <laughs> there is also that that uh, that raw attraction, that that sexual energy that uh, that he feels towards Carmen and that she you know feels towards him. Now, is she allowing him into her private world just because he's the lead guy and this is a great career move? Is she genuinely attracted to him because uh, he's somebody special? He's this, uh, 
brilliant artistic genius uh, who maybe can take her own talent to the next level? Uh, how much of this is genuine uh, love and affection versus a power play or a, just a, a curiosity, a desire to possess and conquer? <laughs> I, I feel like we're getting back into some of that Oshima territory now <laughs> that we talked about uh, with Aaron the last couple episodes. But, but you know, obviously these, 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 uh, these tensions, uh, you know, propel a lot of these films and and this one is no no different so yeah i I found this story very very uh compelling and very intriguing and very visually uh you know captivating as well now you said you didn't quite like it as much as blood wedding but is is there a critique you have or is it just blood wedding was just so impressive Blood wedding really really kind of knocked my socks off um carmen i this is this is pretty great and incidentally did you know that carlos sora made another film um, from the perspective of a flamenco dance company based on Salome. You just brought up Salome. Oh, so. <laughs> no, I didn't. I guess it's probably there in his filmography. Just the name didn't jump out at me. But yeah. I can see the. I can see where he'd want to follow up. And yeah, you know, he it spr- totally makes sense. It's all all there. Yeah, um, yeah this film. This film. I, I, I did. I, I thought it was great, and I really loved uh, a couple of aspects of it that reminded me of some other Criterion films. You know, there's the, there's definitely a connection with the Red Shoes, yes, where you've got this older, you know, uh, kind of uh, head of of a, of a dance company who's grooming this new talent, and kind of takes control as well or wants to not and that provoking in jealousy case, from the rivals yes. as well like oh so i know why he's casting her you know that yes kind of there there's all that and um and also vanya on 42nd street yes. just where eventually these two worlds the carmen story they're trying to adapt and the carmen you know story that's going on in their real life um they start to to mesh together so much that there are plenty of scenes where you you don't know until f- well into the scene which one you're watching. Are you watching a rehearsal of the of the dance, or are you watching Antonio and Carmen um, having their own issues in 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 their in their real life outside of the the dance itself? And that was that was really fun to to watch and to see those develop and and to be surprised in that way. I'm thinking in particular of the um, of the scene where. It, they're they're gambling and that carmen's carmen's boyfriend is is out of prison and uh you know he and uh and antonio are are gambling together and uh and to, to get to, and it's kind of antonio's way of giving him some money so that he'll get out of here mm-hmm. you know thinking yeah, paying oh, him off a little bit yeah. like look you've had your thing with her but she's my lady now I'm going to take her places. Here's your here's your hush money. Get out of her yeah. life. And but he know. can't do it in a way that's that direct. He has to still pretend that he's just mad when he loses. He has to pretend that he's unwillingly giving that money. Right. Um, and you know it's played out as if because that's a real story going on with Carmen's actual you know other. I think it might even be her husband, um, not just her boyfriend. Yeah, it was, it was a real her husband. Story right. Going on. He's in jail. Um, he's in prison. He's coming out. She thinks that you know, you know he really just needs some money so he can move on with his life. Okay, maybe I'll give him some. And then you go into this scene, and they get into this little fight, and then they start to dance. And you're like, oh, oh, this is this is the ballet, or not the ballet. This is the flamenco routine. This is the performance, <laughs> you know, and just. Uh, 
even though that sounds kind of gimmicky perhaps on its surface it's it's really delightful to see these connections between the art the artists what they're what they're doing um artistically and how that's being inspired and it may be um heightened by what's going on in their actual life. Now, I think probably rarely does art and life line up in quite this direct a fashion where, you know, the other person's name is Carmen and all that kind of stuff. You know, I, I do think that there are plenty of instances where, you know, in film history and I'm sure in performance history in general, where someone's life story becomes a, a major um, factor in the performance itself and, and the story that's being told in, in that medium. And so I really liked watching that develop. It, it, it didn't do as much for me as Blood Wedding because I, you know, I kind of felt like I've, I've seen that before. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe was even a little bit more impressed with the ideas in, in, in the others. Um, even though Vanya on 42nd Street came next, I still kind of felt like it was uh, more impressive uh, mixing and mingling between what the characters are actually going through or, or saying their discussions and the play uh, Vanya, Uncle Vanya. And, and so it didn't do as much for me, but I, st- I still loved it. I still thought it was, was great. Yeah. One of the, one of the um, angles that I think was pretty fascinating in this film is just kind of this whole interplay between the you know, French opera Carmen, which was a story about those hot blooded gypsies down in Spain, kind of a French <laughs> appropriation of Spanish culture and kind of a, an indulgence in certain stereotypes and cliches of its time. I think the opera Carmen is from the you know 1800s. That's a 19th century work, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but that sounds about right. Um, and, yeah, and, and yeah. So, late, eight, late 1800s. Right. So, so, so you know, uh, Carlos Sora, as an authentic Spaniard, uh, adapting this uh, – French story, which by, by this point had become sort of an international, sort of almost like a Shakespearean uh, type of thing in in the world of opera. I mean, there's you know there's certain operas that are just kind of classic and you know transcend their national origins in a certain way. Uh, he's kind of reclaiming the story from a genuine Spanish point of view. But in the same way, kind of sort of throwing a lot of these cliches and and, uh, assumptions about Spanish culture back at 
an audience that turns out to be international because this was a pretty significant international hit for Carlos Sora. Maybe, maybe it might be his most commercially successful film of them all because of at least maybe from the Academy Award nomination getting it some attention and just the popularity of the source material. I mean, you know, you throw Carmen out there, there's going to be a certain crowd that says, hey, yeah, let's go check it out because we know the music. Even if we don't know the, the, the ins and outs, a lot of these themes have been used in commercials and, and in just popular culture in general. Uh, the cast is definitely, you know, visually appealing. And, 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 you know, 1983 when this film came out, that's also the time that, you know, films like, uh, you know, Flashdance and Fame and, and uh, you know, some of those kind of early 80s dance classics, uh, you know, were kind of kind of a popular thing. And, and there's even one, uh, one review that I linked to that uh, kind of takes a very critical approach towards Carmen. I, I, I quoted it or linked it not because I agree with the filmmaker or the critic's take, but because I think it's kind of funny. He, he really lambastes the film for being this uh, – you know, kind of uh, awkward time capsule of horrible 80s fashions. Like he really goes after the pastel garments and the, the clothes and the leg warmers and all. It's like, give it a break, guy. This oh, is yeah, just how people dressed back then. You know I mean? You it's have like, an issue with the, the <laughs> 80s, not with the film. Right, right. And it's, I mean, the and, and part of this is, you know, these are these are characters in rehearsal again. They're, they're, they're not putting on a finished stage production, so they're just going to wear what dancers wear. I mean, they're still, you know, dresses and, 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 and but the guys are dancing in jeans and t-shirts and polo shirts and stuff like that. So there is an informality to it. But, but there are also some scenes where Carmen comes out in what really seems to be a, a hyper exaggerated uh you know uh spanish senorita outfits you know i don't i don't know the terminology so i don't want to be too loose with uh <laughs> labeling what she looks like but you know with the veils and the extreme eye makeup and the the the, the, the plastered on curls and and the fans and all that other kind of uh frilly stuff uh it, it almost seems kind of like a you know you know Sort of similar in what what Spike Lee occasionally does in kind of spoofing you know African American cinema in terms of uh, its its extremes or exaggerations uh, and almost playing to a stereotype and throwing it back at the viewer that way. I think Carlos Sora might be doing a little bit of that in the way that Carmen is kind of you know propped up as as an artifact or as a cultural symbol uh, and you know perhaps challenging viewers just to kind of you know, get in touch with the real Spain rather than the the mythology or the, you know, the cartoonish aspect of what we think about those, uh, you know, like I said, those hot-blooded gypsies and, and all of that kind of thing. Yeah. And I actually, be, uh, Michael Koreski's liner notes are really helpful in that regard because all, all of that cultural stuff and what Sara was trying to do as far as, you know, uh, a lot of the things you were just kind of mentioning – they would have gone right over my head. I I, just, I wasn't watching it from that perspective, but I find his his notes to be quite helpful, particularly with the next film, El Amor Brujo. Um, uh, just the way that he's he goes through some of Sara's stated um, motives for presenting things in certain ways. I don't think he ever talks about um, in it with in Carmen. So I, that's a, a great insights. I hadn't thought about that yet, but but I really like um, like the liner notes for that reason and i would recommend them to, to folks they're they they're going into things that i certainly wouldn't uh, 
you know, not only do I not have any expertise about Spanish film or flamenco dancing, but uh, <laughs> these other things as well. I, I, I just didn't, they didn't stand out to me. Um, so I, I like exploring that. It, it certainly deepens the film a bit. So, and yeah, especially with Carmen, I hadn't really thought about it with that. Yeah. Well, do you want to move on to El Elmo Brujo? I think I've kind of said my sure. bit on Carmen. It's it's a but it's it is it's it's fun. I mean, the, the, I guess maybe just one last little bit about the music. Uh, the the opera comes through in just little quotes and little snippets. Um, uh, there is a pretty cool sequence, uh, kind of a, the female version of the knife fight, if you will, in the, the was it the tobacco factory or something like that, where they make cigars or, or they're dealing with. Uh, you know the the, the tobacco mm-hmm. products and and this is where the two women kind of have their their blood feud and their rivalry this will go again is christina uh the older woman and she's got her gang behind her and and carmen as well uh but yeah you, you know like like i i am myself just a casual fan of of opera and classical music not i wouldn't even say casual fan i just know a few things because i've heard them at various points throughout my life Uh, my wife and i have some cds of victoria's secret from back in the 90s and we actually put them in a little cd alarm clock that we still have a nice little relic and that's our (laughs) wake-up music and one of the cds that we would have on uh, for several years had that uh, kind of uh, theme music, uh, I think it's entreact music of Carmen, and so when I hear that, I just sort of think about waking up to that music so many times <laughs> when that CD was kind of our our soundtrack, if you will, that that welcome to the new morning uh, uh, thing that you listen to, and I, I definitely like music more than you know squawking alarms or electronic beeps or whatever. So yeah, just just little little moments like that kind of endeared this film to me, just because again I'm familiar with the music familiar with the story and and enjoy the uh you know just just the juxtaposition of these familiar elements presented in kind of a an unfamiliar context all right so let's move on to el amor brujo why don't i let you go ahead and take us into that one trevor I'm going to start by referring to Koreski's liner notes because they, they talk particularly about the start of the film and how it transitions from, you know, the other two works in this trilogy. So if, if you don't mind, I'll just start with that. Yeah, sure. Um, it starts with a long shot um, where you're, you're, the camera is looking outside of like a warehouse through this big, you know, door, you know, one of the big garage so doors. Some dumpsters, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, the, there's the outside world. And, you, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, we're back in Aki Kurosmaki territory here. <laughs> All of his seem to start with these, these looks at, um, you know, factory life or... Or you know, industrial wasteland. Industrial, yeah. yeah, yep, exactly. This this manual labor within this this trash and uh, this pollution and all that. And the camera kind of you know the garage door shut and the camera starts to pan upward and it's just this vast, huge, huge space. Um, it's showing you the ceilings and and all of this you know, all of this uh, this structure ar- around you and it's 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 like I say it's really really large. Until it settles in on this, uh, st- you know, this set, 
where there's you know dirt on the ground and little 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 houses and and people playing as if they're outside but obviously the world around them is is artificial i mean the sky is like this i don't, I don't know what color it was at that moment it might be this, this this really fake orange or pink or you know things that you might see in in an old um an old set an old studio set the this artificial sky and uh the people are 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 down there on that ground um going about as if this is their real life and I, I like how Sara says, and this is cited in the notes, says, I wanted to suggest an artificial space that little by little becomes a reality. Um, because in his, in his other films, you know, especially like in Carmen, you've got this reality that starts to become fantasy or artificial or, or meshed with the, the, the dance, you know, the performance itself. And in this one, he's kind of trying to reverse that. So it's a really interesting start to the film that uh, takes us into this, this you know, fairly simple story again of, uh, and, and you've kind of brought them up a little bit, right. you know, rival lovers and... The um, pledged marriage. Pledged marriages, yeah. uh, knife fights, um, to the point where, where uh, Antonio Gades, he plays... Um, uh, a, a love, you know, someone who's in love with this woman, who was pledged to be with this man who was killed in a knife fight, and she's still kind of haunted by his ghost. She goes and seeks it out at night, and so here he is trying to to tell her, you know, here I'm alive, I am here. Why are you still focused on this in the past? And the the story kind of develops. It's not it's not really that complicated of a story. Um, it's, again, yeah, it's kind of a a love quadrangle because yeah, there's the, another you know, character, the the Carmen right. character. <laughs> right. Well, Jose has been in, unfaithful to his wife, but he still wants to possess his wife even from beyond the grave. Yeah. Uh, while the uh, Condola, yes, Condola is that the guy's name? Uh, oh, I got it. Okay, let's make sure we got the names right. So, so Carmelo is Antonio Gades. Candela is Christina Hoyos' character. Uh, Lucia okay. is Laura del Sal, who played Carmen, uh, and yeah, she is you know, the the beautiful, enticing one. And then Jose, uh, he, Jose Juan Antonio Jimenez. He always gets cast as the rival. I think he and Antonio yeah. Gades have this <laughs> great uh, ability to stare each other down with just withering, ferocious contempt. <laughs> you know, the, the eyes get locked in, and it's okay. Now it's on, you know. And so, yeah, though, though an interesting reversal from Blood yeah. Wedding yeah, when yeah. Antonio was the aggressor and. Jose was more of the, you know, wronged person, and in this one, it's almost the opposite, and they they play their roles well. <laughs> yeah, well, and and that's the thing; these, these variations on a theme, or that's that's where these movies kind of they're not interchangeable parts; they're kind of evolutions or developments of of ideas that were present, and that's again what makes them truly a trilogy uh, that I think really does have this kind of structural unity and integrity because you've got. These two kind of traditional Spanish stories. Uh, that's the other thing. That this is a um, another uh, Manuel de Fala. De Fala. I don't. I, I don't know much about his name or reputation, but he's another significant figure in Spanish culture. So you've got you know, Garcia Lorca in the first movie, uh, de Fala in the other, in this last one here, and then kind of a a world uh, presentation of Spanish culture or Carmen sort of in the middle uh, with its adjustments and corrections being made as the story of Carmen is, is 
put back into its contemporary Spanish uh, context. So yeah, so there's that's the other thing that these are these are films that have some some literary depth to them, and uh, you know they're they're not just notions or stories that Carlos Sora made up or hired a scriptwriter to kind of you know plug in some formula. He's he's interacting with. You know, historically significant works of art himself, uh, adapting uh, the music to flamenco, the the dance, uh, and and then working his own magic with the uh, with this the artifice of this set design, uh, you know, and very much making us aware that we're in a basically an airport, an airplane hangar that uh, has been transformed into this rustic, uh, you know, Andalusian village. So so yeah so we again we, and we open with a wedding we we've got uh, uh, you know Candela and and Carmela uh, Carmelo dancing uh, even though they're they're not really pledged to each other this is just uh, you know Jose is going to be the groom here but there's definitely the 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 strong attraction at work and the village even recognizes it uh, and 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 then it as it goes on that the, the um, Carmelo uh, happens to be in that wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, Jose, who's who's gotten himself into this predicament of of a, of a of a knife fight, is stabbed, mortally wounded, and Carmelo is the man who's tending to his wounded body when the authorities come in, and he's sent to jail for a crime he didn't commit, while uh, while his while his lover, um, you know, is. is is in the process of being haunted by this ghostly specter of Jose who comes back in the middle of the night and beckons her to dance. Uh, he's still wearing that same blood-soaked uh, shirt that that uh, he wore when he lost his life. And, uh, yeah, so it, it, there's this kind of supernatural element going on. I guess the story or the, the title of the film translates as a love bewitched or love the witch or love the magician. Uh, there's different ways I've seen it translated. So maybe that's why <laughs> Criterion just kind of left it as El Amor Brujo <laughs> and uh, make of it what we will. You know, Blood Wedding obviously had a Spanish title, but we understand what Blood Wedding means. <laughs> yeah. And El, El Amor Brujo, even, you know, Brujo means is the masculine form of witch or the word that we right. use for witch. But it, it kind of maybe they left it too because it it sounds like brutal. Yeah, yeah brutal <laughs> it definitely love. is playing with that. <laughs> yes, the, the you know the, this whatever love here is it's making these characters do these bizarre things and you know it's it's weird we all have, we we don't have just one word for love there are all kinds of iterations but love catches so many of these different some reprehensible qualities as well as some beautiful qualities of human relationships. Um, not that love is all of those things, but, you know, some people love each other with this and, and it's terrible, um, what they do with that love or, or lust or, or jealousy or all these things that can go in there and be kind of a mixture with it. And I think that this, this particular film does a, a, a good job of, and, and is fun to watch, um, play with that because yeah, there's the story that's going on, but I just, I like the idea that, you know, watch the different ways that these characters are feeling and reacting to whatever it is that we might call love one day or another you know and and um and how are they going to to kind of fix this situation so that the right people uh you know the right kind of love uh, triumphs in the end and 
And so, I, and and I think if if you don't mind yeah, getting into some of my not necessarily issues, but this was the weakest of the trilogy for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the artificiality didn't quite work with the themes to me. It felt this is where it started to disconnect a little bit with the filmmaking and the dancing. Uh, the other two were were, were quite strong in, in doing that, whereas this one does start to feel like a performance piece captured in this hangar. Um, and I didn't quite get the same connections there and certainly didn't feel how this, this theme or the, or the setup that Sara did at the beginning really worked with the rest of the film. Uh, do you, do you have any, well, any ideas there or, I, or I, to defend it a bit? Well, I think, yeah, I, I mean, I can see that I, this is a film where I feel like a lot of it really is just the, the production values, the colors, the music, sort of the exotic aspects of of the performance are more center stage. Um, they're looking for sort of a new angle. I think, I think allowing us in on the fact very consciously that we are in an artificial set. I mean, that's where they chose to make the movie rather than on some kind of, you know, uh, Spanish rural location or in a real village. Um, you know, he, he's, he's not trying to hide that. In fact, that's just another angle of saying, Let's let's let you in on the creative process. I think that's another common theme of these three films. And so, even though you're not getting the same kind of okay, folks, let's take a break for rehearsal, so that it's rehearsal <laughs> as performance uh, that we're getting in both Carmen and in Blood Wedding. He's he's still he's still kind of pulling the curtain back a little bit and showing you, you know, a bit more about how movies are made, how. Um, you know, art, you know, is is constructed um, through the use of artificial elements. But you're right; this this falls into yeah. more of a conventional story. Once we're once we're in the set, you know, occasionally we're made. You know, our our attention is drawn to the fact that the the lighting and the the background wall is ch- showing different colors of the sky and different times of day and. Uh, you know, we're going inside these huts that are built up uh, in kind of this uh, kind of village square formation. So I, I think, you know, there's there's kind of the self-imposed limitations of saying, OK, we're going to build everything inside this gigantic room and we're going to, you know, kind of move our cameras and our players around and, uh, you know, kind of give the viewer a little bit of that awareness, uh, yeah. a little bit more self-consciously than going back again to the old MGM Hollywood productions where obviously we were in stage sets, but the, and that's what they were. And any, any viewer that kind of stopped to think about it would say, yeah, this is a, this is a very artificial environment, but here it just sort of seems to be a little bit more surfacely aware and, and pointing itself out that, yeah, we're, we're in a, an, uh, an artificial context here, uh, but we're telling a story yeah. that's trying to have its roots, uh, that does have its roots in, you know, kind of the peasant struggle and uh, and, a, and a little bit of uh, kind of that, uh, uh, you know, crossover between pagan and Christian culture that was happening uh, in, you know, in, in rural Spain, you know, in past centuries, you know, the ghosts and the haunted life, but also, you know, just kind of the you know the the struggle for establishing morality and and taming the passions and and desires that we all feel and struggle with at various points along the way in our lives. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess for me it just doesn't 
it doesn't strengthen the film at all to yeah. go into that amount of self-awareness. Whereas in the other two, it did. It, it, it explored some themes where this one seems to just be almost like the wells kind of run a little bit dry. Yeah, I, I think that's I think so that's fair, right? To say let's let's put this in there because we we've done it before. You know, we've been showing how artifice and reality kind of interact. Let's do it with this one too. But it didn't go much further. Right. But and but they didn't want to just mention, repeat themselves either. You know, they've already, oh yeah, yeah, they they didn't want to do that. That totally makes sense. Um, but I do wonder if it, some of it was you know let's pull you out of the modern you know city and take you into the past a little bit more. You know, we'll we'll show you that this is all part of the same world in a way. Right. I don't know. I'm kind of stretching there to to say that, but. But, you know, there is definitely something you brought up where he's trying to explore the roots of, of flamenco dancing even, you know, in, in yeah. this uh, – this where, where it originated. And that's maybe pulling us away from contemporary society to do that. Maybe that's part of it. It doesn't quite work even if that was the goal for me, at least not now. I haven't been able to wrap my mind quite around it mm-hmm. um and certainly if that wasn't the goal I, I still can't quite figure it out but doesn't doesn't mean it's not impressive um to me um and it doesn't mean that i wasn't like wow that's kind of cool to see the back you know the 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 organs here and to, right, to the get a scaffolding sense how this thing is working and, you know, uh-huh. all that stuff right well and yeah, i think that, also kind of fun but yeah. I think also these films, the three films, show the cast as players. I mean, they are characters on screen uh, performing different roles and sometimes inverting roles. You know, like you said, we've already mentioned between uh, Juan Antonio Jimenez and Antonio Gaddis kind of reversing who's the jilted husband and, and who's not. And then Christina Hoyos and uh, Laura Del Sal kind of their own you know rivalries in fact there's there's different reviews that are again uh, linked on the website here about whether Linda Del Sol should have been cast as as the uh you know as the lead woman uh some say oh yeah Linda Del Sol should have been because she's the more attractive character but i think another reviewer which i would agree with says no Linda Del Sol or Laura Del Sol um is is better as the as the as the rival as the one that Jose strayed from his wife to be with, yeah. uh, I think that makes a lot more sense. But you, you, are, well, you already it, see sort it, of. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I, I was going to say it makes it so Carmelo Antonio Gades's character mm-hmm. isn't just lust. He's right. not lusting after you know. She's like twenty five years younger than him. That's why right. Carmen works so well. Right. Is because he's he's obviously going for something that is more about her physicality and her body than about her. Right. Um, and in this case where he's, uh, trying to, you know, create this relationship with Christina Hoyo, she's definitely more his age. Well, and they were and childhood, more, they were yeah. childhood lovers or, or you know, sweethearts. I guess is probably a better way yeah. of putting it. And, and yet she was pledged to this other boy from her, you know, you know, from her youth. And so she had to go, go through with that. And he's sort of always been on the sidelines kind of waiting for her. And now that her husband has been killed and now that he's gone to prison for a murder, he didn't commit. He comes out and wants to be with this woman that he loves. Who's he's finally, there. finally I mean, is the, available the first scene of the movie right. after that tracking shot right. is of him watching the, the dads right. of the, of, of Candela and Jose 
um, link their children in right. marriage. And he's what. 10, 11, 12. Right. And so he's been, he's been this bystander this whole time. And now he finally has her and yet she's still haunted by this ghost. But, but yeah, the point I was making earlier is that, you know, we, we are still aware of the, of the lead performers in particular as players. And, and even, um, even there are even those, those scenes within the film, this one here where it, it sort of feels like the, the performance has set off and now we're just watching the, the players kind of let their guard down a little bit. When you got the, the guys with the guitars coming off the sidelines, it feels like, okay, we're, we're back on set again. And so these, these performers that we've been watching over the course of three different films, you see uh, uh, Antonio Gaddis showing some signs of age as well as Cristina Hoyos. Uh, Laura Del Sol has become a little bit more mature uh, from her, you know, almost ingenue type of role in Carmen. Now she's, you know, more, you know, full-grown woman and, and everything. And so, you know, so time is taking its toll as well. So, yeah, the, all, all these things, I think this brings the trilogy to a close. I think it's 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 a satisfactory close, but perhaps, you know, is not going to rank up there at the top with, with some viewers. I'm, you know, I'm not sure how important it is to even say one's as much better than the others. I mean, they all make their own impression. But, you know, the the, uh, the final dance, I, I think that maybe the, the satisfactory end of the, of the trilogy is when you get the dance between the four leads and the different yeah. combinations that, that they go through as, as the, you know, the, the different pairings of lovers kind of get, you know, That's connected. Yeah, yeah, because they, they, they all kind of have their moment in the spotlight uh, and, and you, you feel the tension. Uh, who's going to go with whom? You know, is Lucia going to join Jose beyond the grave? Because those are the two who really did, you know, uh, crave each other. Uh, uh, and and uh, will uh, Condola finally yield and, and accept Carmelo as 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 her love uh because they are both alive and be, they both have this this world and this life to share uh, despite the the torments they've each had to endure uh so that is kind of the way it the film wraps itself up and and then there's that fire dance too that uh that uh Christina Hoyos <laughs> does which is just incredible it's you know it i mean it just you just feel this kind of surge of uh, of, of is it, this kind of this incantatory supernatural power of, of, the, of this fire that's just roaring at the heart of this village square and, and she's which is in a building which is inside a building <laughs> right right so there's even a little element of of danger there and, and i'm saying you know that that's a pretty hot fire and these bodies are spinning around pretty furiously and pretty close to those flames you know and so and it just it just puts this kind of real you know no pun intended, but it's this real heat into into the uh, into the into the performance. Uh, she's surrounded by all these these crowds of bodies, and their hands are writhing and twisting in the air. And it's just it's just yeah, it's a very you know, kind of invigorating and, and hypnotic spectacle uh, as she kind of you know it might be Christina Hoyos most spectacular dance in the three films but she's she is really quite an impressive talent uh, you know uh, just a very soulful uh, presence on screen and, and uh, yeah definitely deserves to be kind of highlighted as one of the real uh, key performers and, and attractions of this set yeah I agree and I, I like how you, you you brought it to a close there that that makes it um, that does make it a lot 
more satisfactory in my mind just thinking of it not in terms of here's this film but here are these here are these players coming together and here here they're kind of putting on this this finale in a way of of their relationships of the the different tangles and all through this beautiful flamenco dancing that that's just been phenomenal and to and and again with all of those emotions i mean they're the love, the lust, the jealousy, the passion, the hatred, the the vulnerability, even um, you know, the the primal, all of those things just coming out so nicely in these dances. And then there's that finale right there. It, it, it is beautiful to think of it in those terms, uh, yeah. rather than just as a standalone film. I think it works better for me in, in uh, thinking about it that way. That's that's a, a, a that's a nice strength, a great way to end. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's maybe one of the reasons why I think there probably wasn't a new path forward for uh, Gaddis and uh, Sora to collaborate any further. Uh, but they, I think they achieved in, in its own way a, a true masterpiece. Uh, these these three films really are kind of a a linked set. You know, if you ever had the opportunity just to watch one of them solo, and I'm sure a lot of people just saw Carmen because it had the biggest commercial distribution i'm not even sure if uh, blood wedding ever really made it outside of maybe the most elite art houses in new york city and a few other urban uh, you know centers in its original run uh, but i do i do uh, quote new york times reviews for all three of these films from the 1980s with uh, vincent canby and janet maslin some of the great uh, film critics of that era uh so you know these films definitely do live in memories of a lot of today's viewers and and there may be some listeners who even recall seeing them in the theaters back in the day uh, i'm very fortunate and very thankful that criterion at least had the chance to get these on dvd when they did uh, before studio canal quite infamously yanked the rights to a whole bunch of films you know several years ago and uh have never really done, done anything yeah also. not not in this country anyways and, and i yeah. it does make me wonder if Studio Canal's asking price to continue holding onto the rights was just more than Criterion was willing to pay. Because there's a few films like uh, like La Samurai and a few others that uh, Criterion uh, has you know retained from the Studio Canal lineup, and that might, maybe because their sales justify paying a little higher uh, licensing fee. But you know the, this set, you know, even though it has its fans and its devoted uh, following, I'm sure uh, probably just doesn't quite move uh, off the shelf quite as quickly as some of those, uh, you know, uh, more celebrated titles. Uh, but it is, it is a shame that these, uh, they're kind of buried in obscurity or, or people are prevented from watching them because of the, uh, the, the financial uh, commitment involved in securing a set of your own. Um, yeah. 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 But they are good enough that even though I will be returning the set to its rightful owner, I'll still be looking for it. Not just in a completionist mode, right. but because I, I, I really like them. I want them accessible. Well, it's nice so, to have a friend that you can borrow them from. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Whatever yes, you want to do that yeah, little rewatch there. So, yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I think I think that we've done a pretty nice job of covering these films. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what we've got coming up next time then. And, of course, we do solicit, welcome any feedback, any comments from uh, those of you for enough to have access to these films let us know what you think about carlos sora's flamenco trilogy uh one other thing i'll just mention on the show notes is that there's a couple articles that i link to that uh really go into some pretty impressive scholarly depth about uh, carmen and about 
uh, Elamor Brujo, uh, that uh, they're, they're kind of long reads, but they may be worth it if you really want to get uh, some some stimulating food for thought on, on those two films in particular. So, uh, yeah, just visit our show notes page at Criterion Cast, and, uh, and then contact uh, Trevor and or myself on Twitter or by any other social media means if you want to have a little dialogue about these films. We're very eager, as always, to interact with our with our listeners uh, whenever they get around to watching these films. Uh, so next time, Trevor, you want to give us a little preview of what's going to happen in our April episode? Yeah, well, we are going to be covering Eclipse Series 19, Chantal Ackerman in the 70s. And uh, if things pan out, we'll have a guest for that episode. I think that's the intent. And yes. I guess if things don't pan out, maybe we, we won't no, do I, it yet because we'd really like to have the guest. Yeah, we do have a tentative recording date of April 16th, and hopefully everything will come through. But, yeah, this is definitely a, a, a box where we've got a, we've got a, a guest uh, appearance lined up. Uh, uh, a person who's a big fan and pretty knowledgeable about Chantal Ackerman. And I definitely look forward to getting a little extra added insight into her uh, very unique uh, work. Have you had a chance to see any Chantal Ackerman films yet, Trevor? I know I ask I you this all the time. <laughs> no, yeah, now you got the same answer usually. Yeah. No, I haven't seen any of her films. Um, you know, I've been saving the, the Eclipse set for when we get to it. Um, but... Jean Dillman, though I want to see it, though I've heard such great things, it's so long. <laughs> I haven't sat down to do it yet. Well, these films, they're they're a kind of a workout, and I mean, I mean, and I don't say that in a in a negative way. In fact, they're they're quite quite hypnotic and and quite entrancing, um, and and quite beguiling. I mean, there's just you know, the, the the adjectives kind of uh, you know come to mind. The, the, just a few few words, but. Um, yeah, as I said that this was this the, the the flamenco trilogy is a unique set. Well, the Chantal Ackerman films are pretty unique as well, uh, and going in a different direction. But uh, I'm very excited to be getting into that. We've got some we've got some pretty um, amazing stuff coming in the months ahead as we kind of start narrowing down the options of Eclipse series titles. Uh, as I look at some of them, like the Nikatsu Noir, the Koryoshi Kur- Kurahara the Louis Mal documentaries and a few others. Um, yeah, it's going to be a lot of, a lot of fun getting into some of these, uh, you know, very thought provoking and sometimes challenging sets. And Chantal Ackerman is definitely all of that and more. So be sure to join us. Yeah, definitely. Well, we'll be sure to listen in, uh, in April, uh, Trevor, anything you want to say as far as, uh, online activities or posts or reviews or anything like that that uh... you know i'm i'm doing the the usual um <laughs> there it's a it's a fun season for for world literature because there's a lot of translation prizes out there the man booker international prize just released their long list i've been working through those there's a an american prize called the best translated book award that's uh, releasing its long list uh soon so you know for for listeners who are engaged in world cinema i really think a lot of those books would also be interesting in fact there's quite a bit of crossover between a lot of these books and what criterion does so that's a lot of fun as far as criterion stuff is concerned uh you know i i've been i've been focused mostly on new releases i haven't really been going back in and like continuing on with my my goal of getting all of bergman's films put up on the site with reviews um but that's okay there's a lot of great stuff coming you know we we just got this last week a brighter summer day and holy cow that's been a long time coming 
and worth the wait in my mind. Yeah, so you just posted I, a review on that, right? I did. Yeah. That 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 was a shocking, shockingly great. You know, I you, you always worry about these films, especially when they're unavailable. How much of their reputation is is because hey, holy cow, I finally saw it, and it's great, and it just kind of inflates because it's so you know the scarcity inflates the the value a little bit, and um, you know that that may have been a case with a brighter summer day with some places, but I certainly was pleased with the result. I, I, and it's a great addition. Um, lovely to see that kind of work, you know, that dedication, uh, doing it right. They've had the rights to the film for, you know, and Janice has had the rights to to do, to distribute the film for so long. Um, but it, you know, uh, all the rumors is the different difficulties that have gone into finally getting it out on home video, you know, it's just nice to know that Criterion cares and um, did it right. It's it's beautiful and it's a, it's a great great set. Two two, two Blu-rays. Um, I have I still haven't gotten through like the commentary because that's another f- four hours <laughs> of material. But yeah. but yes, yeah, some, some great stuff. And um, you know, uh, that next month April has some great releases coming out. Uh, only angels have wings. Those, I'm, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It's just, it's a, it's a great year for Criterion releases. They really are. They, they just kind of keep uh, bringing amazing work to the forefront. And you're right. I've been doing a little bit more, uh, trying to stay up with the current releases. You know, of course, we just started the Criterion Chronicles, mm-hmm. or Criterion Crass Cast Chronicles, uh, kind of a a review of the previous month's releases. So. Uh, I'll be covering uh, the Manchurian candidate. That's my assignment for the next episode. But I'll try to be squeezing in uh, Paris Belongs to Us and uh, Brighter Summer Day. And then Which I love, yeah. too. Paris Belongs to yeah. Us was surprising as well. For sure. And then we've got uh, Poem is a Naked Person and the re-release of Bicycle Thieves coming out over the next couple of weeks before March is all said and done. So, yeah, we've got some cool stuff coming up. And I uh, just recorded a podcast myself with Scott and I and... James McCormick on uh, I Am Curious box set, and that was a pretty fun conversation just to kind of give one of Sweden's other filmmakers a little bit of attention other than uh, Ingmar Bergman or uh, Jan Troel as as he's becoming a little bit more well-known to American audiences. Uh, I've never seen those films, just... Just know them by a little bit by reputation as well. This this not something I right. ever wanted to. Well, you know, so they're, to hear your they're, conversation. They're, I think they've got a lot more going for them than the popular opinion might have you think. So the the episode we just recorded, I think, works pretty well for non viewers, but people who might be. <clears throat> curious about those films. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am curious. Well, good. Um, so. Purple today. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's pretty much a, a good time to wrap it up. So, yeah, I've got my uh, blog over on Criterioncast now. I will be actually doing a post about I Am Curious Blue, one of the two films in that set, just to kind of wrap up a few thoughts of things that I forgot to say when I was recording the podcast the other night. So that's where we're at, folks. Uh, thank you for listening in. Thank you for your support and attention. Uh, we'll talk to you in April. Bye-bye. <laughs>